It's Lions, Towers, and Shields from the Incomparable Network. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. Welcome back to a discussion of classic film. This is episode 89, It Happened on Fifth Avenue, our holiday episode. Welcome back, friends, to the final episode of the winter season, fall season, I guess it's fall season more than winter, of Lions, Towers, and Shields. This is the last episode we'll be doing for a while, but we're going out with a bang because to celebrate the holiday season, we're going to talk about this 1947 movie, It Happened on Fifth Avenue, and I have three wonderful panelists to talk about it with me, beginning with Annette Weirstra. Hello. Hello, Shelley. I hope you don't mind, but I brought 13 of my siblings with me. (laughs) (laughs) Also joining us, Mickey Maynard. How many siblings did you bring? I didn't bring any siblings, but it's cold in Michigan, and I am putting on the name code. (laughs) Lovely. And also with us, David J. Lore. Please give us a temperature check and tell us how many siblings you're bringing. (laughs) And that goes for your precious Jim, too. (laughs) Oh, wait. Wait. Wrong movie. Similar (laughs) quote. Wrong movie. It's okay. It's okay. Nobody's going to check you. Well, Ooh. I might. But yeah, anyways. you might. So uh, it happened on Fifth Avenue. This is uh, 1947, which was kind of a big year slash era for Christmas movies. It is the year after It's a Wonderful Life. It is the year Miracle on 34th Street came out. There is actually a connection to It's a Wonderful Life that we'll get to. But this was released by Allied Artists, which was the, the, the low-budget Hollywood studio monogram decided to get fancy. So they created this thing called Allied Artists, and they promptly spent $1.2 million to make this Christmas movie, which was like 10 times the budget that they would normally spend. And they got a bunch of character actors, including Victor Moore and Charlie Ruggles and Don DeFore and Gail Storm, who was sort of a singing, dancing, singing star of the 40s, which I didn't know until I read this recently. She had a TV show later on. In any case, they got all these character actors together and they put them in this movie about people who uh, inhabit a mansion. Uh, They're homeless. It's 1947, so it's after the war. There are a lot of reasons that people do not have homes. And they inhabit... This house belonging to Victor Moore. Uh, sorry, they had cut. They inhabit this house belonging to Charlie Ruggles. They find out later who is our uh, our, uh, our our rich mean man, who we must of course tame by the end of the movie. Uh, and so, let me uh, before I get too deeply into details, let me ask my usual. Uh, first question, and I think I know this already because some people got in touch. Uh, <laughs> you're not the only one. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, have you guys seen this movie, and uh, what are what are your sort of top-line thoughts about that? Mickey, we'll start with you since you're chuckling over there. Well, I have not seen it before, and, you know, I always kept thinking, why haven't I never seen it? And I think it's because Miracle on 34th Street is just the resonant movie when it talks about Christmas and New York City. So somehow this completely slipped my radar. And I, uh, my top line impression is that it's the skinny latte of screwball comedy. <laughs> David, can you follow that? Uh, well, you know, it's it's one of those I wasn't sure if I had seen it. And then as I was watching it, I realized I must have because there were whole runs of dialogue and you know set designs that, that were just popping into my head um and i went and looked it up it's one of those films that just sort of vanished in 1990 and you know people were were clamoring for it to come back you know going hey turner classic do this hey american movie classics when you showed old movies do this right and uh I'm not sure why it vanished or what took it so long, uh, but I think I, I saw it when I was young and 
I was pleasantly surprised. But yes, it is not. I wouldn't say it's top tier, but I like it. We'll get to that. Yes, I will uh, add a little bit to the details about why it disappeared and why it came back uh, Hmm. shortly. But uh, Annette, how about you? Had you seen this before? Of course not, Shelley. Not, <laughs> not only have I not seen it, I've never even heard of it before. And so uh, you, you're like, don't worry. It's, you'll like it. I, I just trust you. You know me by now what I'm going to like, what I'm not going to like. I quite adored this movie. As like the premise is interesting. The like, I don't know. It was just really funny. It was genuinely funny, which I think you don't always get in a Christmas movie. So... I'm going to say controversially, I like this better than a lot of the classics I've seen because it's less saccharine and it had a great eclectic cast of characters sort of uh, keep building up over the course of the movie and putting them all in this house. And the result, I think, was just very enjoyable to me. Hey, even Bosley Crowther liked it. Well, I don't know if that's a recommendation or not, but I did notice that. I was like, wait, if Bosley likes it, maybe I shouldn't like it as much as I do. I don't know. Well, I mean, he he damns it with genial and charming, which I get. It's not... Yeah. <laughs> it's not great, according <laughs> like, to him. But like, he doesn't love it. He there was gushing. a split in the critical reaction, which is kind of interesting. So so a little bit of history here. So actually, this film was acquired by Liberty Films, Frank Capra's company, in 1945. This is before he made It's a Wonderful Life. He was looking for a Christmas movie to do. And he just chose to make It's a Wonderful Life. And that's and, and a lot of people at that time weren't really fond of that movie. It didn't do very well. This movie actually made money. Uh, so <laughs> Liberty Films had it. And they sold the rights away to somebody else because Capra had already made It's a Wonderful Life by this point. And that's how Monogram slash Allied Artists got a hold of it. This is the first Allied Artists film. Uh, they make it. It makes some money. Like I say, they spend $1.8 million to make it. Maybe it's 1.2. I'm sorry. Uh, a little over a million dollars to make the movie. And they, they do some box office. It is not by any means a hit. It is nominated for one Oscar for Best Story, which it loses to Miracle on 34th Street. So 1947, <laughs> the year of Christmas movies. Um, it is uh, floating around. It's on television. and It is available for television in the 50s, 60s, 70s. In 79, it's one of a bunch of monogram allied artist movies that gets uh, scarfed up by MGM. By this time, MGM is in this acquisition phase. They're, they're starting to get things like the RKO Library and later the Warner Brothers Library. And it's all going over to MGM. And in the 80s, it was available for TV, but I think it was probably uh, superseded by It's a Wonderful Life because there's, they're so perceptually similar. It's a Wonderful Life was in the public domain, and you could tell by looking at the prints. Uh, anybody could pick it up, and so the stations would typically do that. 1990, it disappears for, from television availability for reasons I'm not sure of. But yeah, like David said... There were lots of campaigns to get Turner Classic Movies and American Movie Classics, which then showed classic movies to to play it, and they never did. 20 years later, TCM finally put it on, and it has. It, there's even a fan website out there somewhere for it. Like pe- there are people who really love this movie, hmm. and so they were eventually successful in getting TCM to put it on. It now is because TCM. I mean, frankly, they're always looking for. Christmas movies to program for December. I mean, how many do you have, right? And how many do you need? Right. You're competing with everybody else who does Christmas movies. And so they, they run this pretty much every year. And I think since about 2014, it's kind of been you know, on the menu. And a lot of people I've been aware of, And I was not aware of it until I, I'm sure I saw it for the first time on TCM after that happened, because I have no memory of 
seeing it before. And I, I you know, you sort of have this feeling of, oh, it's a hidden gem that I didn't even know existed. Um, and it's interesting because it, I, I think there are some people who, who I heard from, by the way, who like this wonderful life. It's a wonderful life a lot better. And there are other people who are like, you know, this is, it's a wonderful life, but maybe a little bit less. Or and there, there are a few people out there who, who even like it better. And I, I think it's, it's, I think it's worthy to be on the list. Basically, I agree. It's not a, like a top tier movie, but it's, it's fun. And I always enjoy a movie where, the character actors don't get to lean on or be in the shadow of the star. And if you think about like storytelling, when when it's a star based vehicle, it feels like there are more rules about what can and can't happen in the movie because you can or can't do certain things with a star. But with character actors, you can have two old guys. You can have uh, you know Don DeFore, who's who's fine as a leading man, but he's not a leading man. I mean, he's just he's just Don DeFore. You can have Gail Storm, who is much more girl next door than rich girl, but she's kind of playing both parts. And it's it's an interesting cast of characters that you wouldn't otherwise see. In it's a movie. it's really an ensemble movie, mm-hmm. which is kind of fascinating for the period. And uh, yeah, I I mean, as I was watching it, it's kind of like um, you take a little bit of Christmas Carol. And a little bit of My Man Godfrey, and you sprinkle in a little Damon Runyon, and I mean, I guess it's reminiscent of Wonderful Life, but it doesn't, you know. I mean, it's someone who changes their ways, but it's it's not even. I, I mean, I can see why Capra would have acquired it. Um, it does have that feel to it, um, but unlike It's a Wonderful Life, I actually liked this. So. <laughs> The two that it reminded me. You don't. You don't. <laughs> wait. 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 You. You don't like. It's oh, a wonderful life. Quite, what is? I, I know. I know. We don't I, have I can, time. I can but do the, the one headlines. minute version. It's the difference between sentiment and sentimentality, and mm. to me, wonderful life kind of tilts over. Several years ago, on the Mothership Incomparable show, I famously had to defend the fact that I do not like It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, I was roundly mocked well, for it, but I I made my case. You know, I liked I liked It's a Wonderful Life when we couldn't see it that often. right. Yes, it's it's become something like a Christmas story that it runs every year, every year, every year. And when you see it too mm-hmm. much, then it does definitely seem you know very sentimental and almost maudlin. But if we only watched it like once every 10 years, um, I think the movie would probably resonate a little more kindly. Yeah. Well, it's um, you, you see the, the flaws to it. You see the seams. Uh, you see them tap dancing really hard to make this story work when you see it over and over again. Um, Annette, jump in. I think yeah. you wanted to say something. Oh, I, I've just never seen it beyond like bits and pieces. And it seems sort of boring. But Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I and I've heard it's uh, yeah, it also has the suicide thing, which I don't love uh, mm-hmm. attempt thinking about. And so I've just been like, I'm not seen it. And I don't think I ever, ever will just bother watching it. So the way to the way to see it and really enjoy it, the Music Box Theater in Chicago does yes. a double header every year of of It's a Wonderful Life and um, White Christmas, and you're instructed to participate. It's sort of like Rocky Horror mm-hmm. Picture Show, except for Christmas. And you bring jingle bells and a little bag, and you know every time the angel gets its wings, you ring your jingle bells and you, you know, you boo Mr. Potter and that sort of thing. So that 
watching it that way is it's a group experience fun. and it's it, a lot that of is fun. more yeah. fun i did get in trouble one year because i did jump up and do the time warp but aside from that <laughs> <laughs> i i do think the point about seeing it's a wonderful life too often is is a good one because it's a wonderful life is a clever premise like yes the idea that the guy wonders that the what what would it be like if he didn't exist that's a great premise but if you see that premise too often you forget that and you're looking at the flaws in the movie because it's not a super, you know, well put together movie. Anyway, we're, that's well, not what we're talking about. I hate to drag <laughs> well, us yeah. away from it. And, and I, sorry, I was just going to say, it's, it's kind of like part, part of the thing that uh, works for me is that it's a Twilight Zone plot. Part of the reason it doesn't sure. work for me is that it's not a very well put together Twilight Zone plot. Like it, it overstays its welcome. The Twilight Zone is 30 minutes and it, it just flies and this, you're like, okay, we get it. Let's keep going. Where's the next thing? Come on. I just had an idea for an, an LTS holiday episode. It's going to be controversial Christmas movies or movies about which we have controversial takes. Ooh, because yeah. I have one that's a doozy. And we'll do that. Maybe we'll do that next year. I was going to have us do maybe in St. Louis, but who knows? I've got a year to plan. Boy, um, I've got a year to like work on my controversial meet me in St. Louis take. <laughs> God, that movie. I have no memory of the movie. That Judy girl, she just didn't know what she was doing. Oh, Trolley God. song, my. No. <laughs> no, the movies that this, it was interesting you mentioned My Man Godfrey, because, yeah, I think the sort of take of the, the rich man who reforms in some way is is probably the more relevant thing. And I thought of My Man Godfrey. Godfrey I also thought of Easy Living, because mm-hmm. you had. Yeah, I was going to say Easy you Living, You have a rich too. guy yeah. who is not. I mean, he's 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 got the trappings of being terrible. He's a comic book rich guy. But I mean, yes. Charlie Ruggles just can't pull off being a meanie. Mm-mm. And so he's a meanie in terms of his actions. But you look at him and you go, it's Charlie Ruggles. Come on. Well, it's, I don't even it's, know who he is. And I still was like, I like you. <laughs> I think well, you're going to I think you're going to change. I like it. It's it's not quite as cartoonish as, say, like a British pantomime. But it's very much that, you know. Oh, you're not really mean. No, you can't really be that mean. Oh, you're going to be fine by the end of the movie. And it's kind of reassuring when he is being mean. You're like, yeah, you're going to get redeemed. Right? He's never quite as evil as Scrooge. It's the sweater. Once you put that sweater on, <laughs> like, there you, go. you can't be evil in a cardigan like that. And and you can't be evil in a, evil in a cardigan. There's your Boom. title. There's your title. There's your title. For once Merry I Christmas. Have, I, have, I have notes on one page that I always keep, and then I, I have finally started keeping um, a set of notes, which are things that happen during the show that I have to write down, and now I have to write down time. Now I'm, I'm so you. sorry. No, I appreciate it. It's, it's fine. So, yeah, let's talk about some of these people. We've got Victor Moore, who is our the leader of our, our homeless contingent who lives in this uh, who lives in this mansion. And uh, then we have like Don DeFore, who we've seen on LTS and Too Late for Tears. He famously we have two actors who had later big career, three actors who had later careers on television that are of note. Don DeFore, who plays the uh, head of the household in Hazel, that terrible show, in my opinion, because Shirley Booth is a great actress and she was really <laughs> badly used in that show. But whatever. She took took it for the paycheck, I guess. Then you have Gail Storm, who had her own tv show in the 50s that i only saw i've seen a couple of episodes i have no living memory of it and then you have alan hale jr who will eventually become the skipper on skipper Island. skipper yes. 
And he's like in his 20s in this movie. Because I always oh, forget how young Alan Hale Jr. was when he played the skipper in the yeah. 60s at Gilligan's Island. So you see him in his 20s and you're like, wow, this was a really long time before that. It wasn't that long. And Alan, by the way, his father, Alan Hale, had been a, a Warner Brothers character actor too. And it's the only like multi-generational set of character actors I can think of in Hollywood. But I just love the idea that they're like talking together and... Yeah, I'm going to, you know, go into work and make a decent amount of money. But then I get to go home and be unrecognized, basically. And I don't know, I find that sort of life <laughs> fascinating. But yeah, so we have all these we have all these actors. Uh, Victor Moore, who I think mostly played, you know, comedy parts and played parts yeah. like this. But this is what he's mostly known for, because this is probably the biggest and best part he ever had. So so what do we think of Victor Moore as the leader of our band of homeless uh, Well. It is it is kind of a stereotypical Victor Moore part. I know, I know. Someone who's going, wait, all these Victor Moore parts. Um he was he originated the role of Moonface Martin in the original uh production of Anything Goes in nineteen thirty four. Oh which really? is very much again right. he was a theater guy in the twenties and thirties, was wasn't he? Theater guy, yeah. And I th- I wanna say he really broke into film um was he in that terrible movie of Anything Goes? I have to look now. Uh, but I don't he, remember. but he was he was certainly in Swing Time with Fred and Ginger, which is probably his second most notable movie. Um, and and he very much plays that sort of innocent, bumbling, uh, kind of an agent of chaos, but not an overwhelming. You know, he's like he's not like Lucy, uh, totally destroying the scene. But he is, he is a little agent of chaos who comes in and disrupts every scene he's in, right? He changes, like even in this, when the cops come and try to stop them, he totally changes the situation by just being sweet and innocent and and can't quite sing. Charlie Ruggles sometimes played parts like that, which is right. funny because they almost, they could have switched, you know? Right, they could absolutely I think they chose switched. correctly. I think, yes. they, mm-hmm. I think Victor Morton's in the right part, but I, was, I always think about it. That's a Charlie Ruggles kind of part. Like Ruggles is often sort of a a, a, a guy who is circumstances are getting to him, whether he's a uh, functionary or whether he's a, a rich guy. Like he's not usually in control of his own destiny. I think in this right. movie more than usual, he you know whatever we may be say about how he appears in his cardigan and how mean he is, he's much more in control of his his destiny than he is in most of his roles. And, and Victor Moore is in a weird way too well and and he's sort of like i mean you can see why this would have appealed to capra and and i I mean i would say probably the most connection you have to the wonderful life plot is that he kind of acts like clarence he's he i mean is he a hobo or is he an angel could it could work if he were just an angel i don't know um but it is but it is sort of that innocent pulling pulling the redemption out of you so I had a reaction to, you know, basically the plot of the movie, but it has to do with the actors, too. I had the impression, and I know it's not the case, but that this was a pre-war script that got updated after World yes. War II, because all of this could apply to the Great mm. Depression. And more so. And uh, we, we certainly did have unemployed servicemen who came back after World War II. And if you look at um, the best years of our lives, there's examples right in that movie. So it's a little bit of a nod to that. But it just felt, a, I wouldn't say stale, but it just felt like it, it had been one of those movies that was on a shelf somewhere. And they were looking for material and took it down and said, well, this is set in 1935, but we could fast forward and make 
the unemployed people, unemployed service people and update it that way. Because it, it just kind of felt about 10 years old when, when I was That's an interesting it. point. And I, it feels like since it's post-war, the solutions are more readily at hand because you can say, well, there's stuff out there if we can just go grab it, if we can just make our idea work and you know, we have the capital. Whereas if it's set in the Depression, you would have really had to depend just on – I guess you do depend on, on the largesse of the, the rich guy. of the rich guy. Yeah, yeah. but there's, there's right. like less – I know, let's go out and build barracks for all the people who need homes and then they can pay their way and it can be a going concern. And that's that's much more saleable as a post-war thing. But that's really interesting. And especially because you have, uh, I mean, like the Gale Storm character, you know, is, is is not a poor person. But if it were if it were depression, you can see her be they, them deciding to have her, you know, being an office girl who's, you know, down on her luck. I'm thinking of those Loretta Young parts from the early <laughs> uh, depression era. Right. Uh, but instead, she's just, you know, she ends up getting caught up because she sneaks into her. She gets into her own house where she thinks she's going to be alone. And so she ends up having to create this character of this person who's down on her luck, which is perhaps a little less believable after the war, you know, what's what's her what's her problem? She's trying to get a job as a singer. Right. So she's, you know, not in a profession that is at any particular risk after the war. Presumably there are lots of cabarets going on. Lots of ex-servicemen would like to be entertained. I mean, hey, there's a Latin delicatessen that, that has a live stage show. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> so the interesting thing about Victor Moore to me, too, is that he, his character is He's like I say, he's the leader of this group. He's the first guy who discovers the mansion. He gets through the manhole cover and he spends the winter there. And he's sort of our our leader, our elder statesman, as as it were. But he also, once people start arriving, is the one who lays down the rules. Mm -hmm. And to the extent he does that, he can be kind of irritated. And Don DeFore sort of picks it up, too. The Jim Bullock character is like, I'm going to be your junior enforcer. And I sort of thought about that. And I was like, why did they make Victor more like that? And my theory is that it's the way that they get past any objection people might have to the fact that these guys are squatting in a mansion, even though they leave it the same as they found it. They are smoking his cigars and eating his food and drinking his brandy and that sort of stuff. And so by Victor Moore being a tough disciplinarian on this little family and having rules, whether they're good rules or not, it seems like that's to tell the audience this is okay because they're taking good care and being honorable stewards of this place they're squatting in. There's there's a parent in charge. Yeah. But it makes him annoying. <laughs> See, and I found yes. it the opposite. Where it's like I found it reassuring because I'm a rules person, and I would <laughs> want to like respect this place and like kind of be invisible in it as the goal is. So it's like you you tell them, don't let them mess up the house because then you're and also he's been doing it for multiple years, so he needs to keep the good thing going by create like create because if the footprint is too big they're gonna like lock it down and he loses he loses the space but it also sort of reminds me of a lot of um i feel like it's in a lot of kids books where you get to like sneak into the museum or the department store i can't remember the name of that one where you go in the department store and it's like I longed to sneak in someplace and hide and, and you know, so I, I just have spent a lot of time on, on thinking about being an invisible uh, interloper. And I think ultimately, he beca- even though he's not part of any of the romances, he is kind of the heart that pulls people together, even if he's he is kind of bossy. He's, he's Mr. Rourke. 
<laughs> you know, that's a good analogy. Except yeah. he's not running around going, smiles. He's like, keep your feet off the furniture. Well, he, he is he is trying to keep them cheering up, you know. Right, that's true. I don't mind the existence of the rules. I guess some of the, there are places where he enforces them or, uh, uh, I don't know, he just, he's aggressive with folks. <laughs> when he, he went into the room and yelled at uh, Mary and Mike, about yeah, being that in the was... same room at night and like be like, a good on. example for for the young folks. I'm like, they're not that young. Like right, for not right. they, <laughs> come on. They're like they're thirty, you know, and, and, and Mike and me and by the way, Anne Harding, who plays uh, Mary, is like fifteen years younger than Charlie Ruggles, who's like sixty, so you know, everybody <laughs> th- there's lots of ages going around. You know me and my mm-hmm. my age thing. I always have to look stuff up and go and and our Anne Harding, by the way, like she had been a uh who I liked very much in this, and I think her chemistry with Charlie Ruggles is really good. Uh, and But it, it's funny because she seems older, and I think she's kind of playing old. She had had a career as a leading woman in the very, very early 30s, and then not so much after the mid-30s. And now she's like fully embraced, I'm a character actor, and if I need to be the wife of a guy who's 61 and I'm 44, I'd say I'm going to do it, you know? And I think she does a good job at That's it. That's work. Well, one thing I found interesting about Anne Harding was that Anne Harding was in the first version of Holiday. Right. That's right. And she played mm-hmm. Linda, Linda Seaton, which is the part that that Catherine There's Hepburn played. There's a first version in 1938. Yeah. Huh. There's a first yes. version in 1930. It 1930. was an early in- talkie. And I think Edward Everett Horton played the same character same in part. both movies. Yes. But it was so interesting to me that they remade it so quickly because the original was 1930 and the the remake was 1938 and it's like remaking a 2015 yeah. movie now wow um and and in fact if you buy the dvd which i have because i'm a pepper and completist uh you get both versions and so you can mm-hmm. compare them they're very similar like the lot like a lot of the dialogue is the same and it's weird because it has the 1931 has that sort of 1930 weird this is very old and old-fashioned whereas mm-hmm. the 1938 version which is you know george cukor and everything it just feels very modern and snappy and uh, but it is interesting to see and i can still see shit like i can see ann harding and think of that and i can go oh yeah because and that's probably the movie that she's best known for is that really early version of holiday which is a bit of trivia i i probably wouldn't have whipped out because i haven't had anybody <laughs> watch the old version yet oh, thank yet. you for doing that for me because <laughs> i was thinking it I, no, I was thinking it. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, and speaking of Charlie Ruggles, he, of course, was the man who did the leopard calls and uh, bringing up baby. He was Mr. Peabody. I'll be with you in a minute, Mr. Peabody. Uh, and he's he, in that movie, he's like this sort of goofy, befuddled, rich guy again. Because uh, Charlie Ruggles is, is sometimes, I mean, he can play everything from the you know the guy who's who's a stable hand all the way up to the to the rich guy and sort of make it make it work and this is almost this is almost a really straight part for him even though he's playing two two roles but in bringing up baby he's this sort of goofball who's watching all this chaos around him but most of his contributions are is doing a leopard call so other actor stuff i i, I my okay here's my hot take I think Gail Storm was boring in this. I don't think I, – I did not buy her as a rich, 
uh, spoiled uh, debutante or whatever. I, I, I bought the girl next door part. She gave she was giving Lorraine Day, yeah. who if if you've seen the Doctor Kildare movies was the the female lead in those. But she was just sort of very high. I'm sunny. I'm shiny. I'm happy. I'm going to be Don DeFore's love interest, and everything's going to be swell. Oh, and my dad is this rich guy. Hi, Charlie Ruggles. But I just I did not believe her as the rich woman she is not most of the time. I I can see why Don DeFore's character would be like, hey, you're cute. But that was about it. You know, it's just like, yeah, okay, she's cute. You know, something like Christmas in Connecticut, you buy Barbara Stanwyck as someone who can fake this stuff in writing and is totally useless in the kitchen in real life. Um, You know, uh, I'm trying to think of other examples. But yeah, it's you, you buy that. Whereas this, it's like, Oh, Gale Storm is also present. And, you know, that whole story kind of vanishes for for big parts of the film. Um, like I, I mentioned the Latin delicatessen. I think that scene is is almost too much. It's like to remind us, hey, there's the, also this story. Like we're all focused on Charlie Ruggles, but these people are also still in the movie. Um, let's let's be with them for five minutes. That st- that scene was actually really distracting yeah. for that reason because you you were invested in the fact that they had a love story, but the idea that you see them out and that there's all this business going on and there's you know it's it, frantic. It, it just it, did, it felt like yeah it's very frantic and it felt like it was out of place in the movie. Yeah, and I mean I I, I did laugh out loud because you know you have that very typical forties movie thing of you know all the neon signs coming at you and you're like oh I recognize that place I recognize that place and. Leon and Edelstein's Latin delicatessen. <laughs> and it took me about 10 seconds. I want seconds. that to exist, though. I right. love it. Oh, I would totally go. Uh, if I, I bet it would be good. I'd be there. Well, you, I bet. You have um, Cuban Chinese. Why not a Latin yeah. delicatessen? Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard of Stranger with hot Fusion. hot sauce or something? I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, it did take me about 10 or 20 seconds to, to process that. And then it's like, oh, stuff is happening. So another thing I read in one of the reviews, and I I don't feel this way about it, curious if you do, there's this large, as so often happens in a movie like this, there's this large ensemble, people are collected. Some of the people that are collected are uh, Jim's, uh, Don DeFore's army buddies, Alan Hale and um, Edward Ryan and and their respective spouses, who's, I don't remember the actress's name, and their kids. So you have six people who join this ensemble, which make everything a little bit more chaotic in, in the mansion, but I think they're fine. And the some, one of the reviews I read said, they're not needed. There are too many characters. Did Do you guys feel that way? Did you feel like there were too many, or was it just right? For the plot, I thought that it sort of drives that motivation of Jim to kind of I think if they weren't there, Jim didn't seem like a get up and get things done kind of guy in terms of getting his plan of the garrison. And so having the dynamic of the three of them kind of pulling together and pushed along by McKeever. And I so, yeah, they're they're like kind of plot devices. But I think in terms because you say uh Trudy was boring I think Trudy and Jim are a bit boring uh so that's I'm like okay let's give (laughs) Jim something to do and have this thing going on with these other two people that actually becomes really important to the plot more and more and and they're having the dynamic of the two characters two sets of characters uh bidding on the same property and not realizing it at first and having different plans and representing different 
ideas for the future in terms of, you know, accumulating everything and dominating versus creating housing for people who need housing. Um, One of these is better than the other. But yeah, I, I think if you didn't have those other characters, it just like I, that plot would sort of peter off or I, I don't know. It gives it drive is my sum total. Yeah, it's it's sort of like the the density, the, the it sort of builds to a point where, yeah, there are a lot of people who need help and you kind of need a lot of people to illustrate that. Um, now. My only problem with it is they're all there. They're not really doing anything. Once in a while, you'll see some of these other characters on the on the periphery. Uh, you get to see them all singing. Well, I get you get to see them sitting around in the distance as someone in is uh, dubbed in singing in the background for Christmas. Hey, it's Christmas! Yay! Um, and and so I I think maybe part of that criticism would be that they're all there and they don't really do much. Whereas, you know, I think about something like, um, like, like you said, this is the skinny latte of screwball comedies. Uh, there's not a lot going on Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. these characters. And I think about something like Christmas in Connecticut, where once the plot really kicks in, then you have people hiding in rooms and things going on. And the baby ate the pocket watch and the horse ran away. (laughs) And, you know, everything is spinning and and, and and the more people you have in a good farce or a good screwball comedy, the more chaos you can have. There's no chaos in this movie. No. And it could use a little bit of that. Yeah, I was thinking about The Man Who Came to Dinner, oh, which yeah. is actually my favorite Christmas movie. And there is activity going on all the time. There's penguins. <laughs> there's people rushing in and out. There's, you know, there's a romance. There's ice skating, you know, and it just has a lot of movement. And this is quite a sedentary movie i think there's only one or two three maybe sets in it you know there's the house there's the latin deli and the the place where they go with the barracks those seem to be kind of the three main sets oh in his office oh in central park or what's supposed to be central park yeah so we got like five, but they don't use, but a lot of them are used for one scene. Yeah, it's not, it's, there's not a lot of activity. I mean, if you think about like a high class, you know, like a full fat, a full fat latte, um, <laughs> something like Philadelphia Story. And I'm not sure Philadelphia Story counts as a screwball comedy, but there's a lot of sets in that movie. And yeah. if you think about even Holiday, they use the different floors of the mansion. And this is, you know, let's go into the living room and put up the Christmas tree or let's go have dinner. And it's like the the rare times something funny, funny happens. It's it's almost like the movie just stops dead for a few minutes to let the funny thing happen. And then it starts up again, like when they're all celebrating Christmas and the two policemen have come in and and they're all singing. And then the one cop goes, all right, all right, that's enough of that. And he comes in and he does like two and a half minutes of of business in a Damon Runyon voice. Hey, let me call my wife Moidle. Right? And it's it's very Damon Runyon. I, I called him three Stooges cops though, even oh, though totally. two of them. Totally. There were just there's very, very Stooges, the accents, the whole thing. I expected one cop to bonk the other on the head. I really <laughs> did. One argument for because it's such a sedentary movie, there is an argument for having enough characters to like physically fill the space and I'm also Mm. a big I always talk about how like a main character needs somebody to play off of in 
in whatever way that means. So, so DeFore needs those two guys to talk to about his big housing plans. Other, who's he going to talk to? He can't talk to Trudy about it. He just right. barely knows her at this point. He can't really talk to McKeever. It's McKeever's idea. He he has to ha- have somebody to carry it forward with. And then at Christmas, you need to see how full that room all of a sudden is, because that's the point at which we bring not only all the people that are living at the house, but we have the cops stop by. And you're like, oh, that's a lot. Of, I think they're like 13, 14 people at that point. And like to their credit, even though those characters don't do a lot, I don't think they get in the way. They don't make the kids stars. There's a baby, and there's another kid that's a you know talking kids bigger than a toddler. Uh, and the the wives the, the the wives have kind of funny scenes. They're they're not particularly well developed characters by any means, but they're kind of like okay, this is what my husband's doing now. We're we're doing we're living in this house, and we're gonna we're just go following along. And and like there's a way that they add texture. I didn't find them. I, I found that they they kept them in the background, just about the right amount for my for my taste. But yeah. it was interesting to read somebody say. I don't think they're necessary though. I think if you got rid of them, I wouldn't be like, wow, this house sure does seem empty. Well, I I do like that you have one talking kid to remind us that it's a Christmas movie. Because <laughs> one of my one of the lines I really liked was, you know, are you? It's the the kid comes in and is like, are you Santa Claus? Are you, you know? And then, and and that's, I mean, that's fine, but it sets up the thing later. Oh, he thought I was Santa Claus. You? Why? Which is, it's just a lovely little, you know, oh yeah, you're a rich guy, but you don't help mm-hmm. people. It's, it's a nice, it's a nice moment. And you kind of need a little kid for that. Yeah. So uh, another review. I, sh- I read too many reviews this time. Usually I tried to stick to a couple, but there were so many different takes because some people really like this and, and say some of what we've said that it's like it's it may not be the uh, Miracle on 34th Street or Meet Me in St. Louis or, you know, the super, super classic, but it is a, a worthy movie. So so my question to you, because somebody actually proposed this, is it happened on Fifth Avenue, a Christmas movie? It's a winter movie. Because it it starts on November third and it ends just after New Year's. New Year's, yeah. And it's in you know it's kind of like what Holiday Inn, where it covers a large span of time and gives you those those uh, benchmarks of holidays. And it's about generosity and generosity of spirit, and that's kind of Christmas. Um, Christmas is the one holiday they really go all out celebrating in it they don't really do thanksgiving because i guess that wasn't still maybe quite as popular at the time but i mean i would show it at christmas but i might not say oh this is this is a christmas movie with santa and trees and bells and angels um but it's not out of place it's it's in the venn diagram yeah, it's a it's a movie to be watched at Christmas. I don't yeah. think it's a Christmas movie because, you know, certainly Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street is a Christmas Christmas movie. Um, it's a Wonderful Life probably didn't start out as a Christmas movie, but now is a Christmas movie. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's got a Christmas scene. Um, so, what was the movie, the Claudette Colbert movie, since you went away? Yeah. Um, and that had a Christmas scene in it as well, but that's not a Christmas movie. So. I think they TCM probably does program that at Christmas because, as I say, they're always looking for content. My favorite Christmas movie is Bridget Jones's Diary, which starts and ends in Christmas. Oh. And I'm like, I love that movie. I watch it every Christmas. I just think that uh, – and 
look, I'm watching nonstop Hallmark movies right now. I love a Christmas movie in whatever <laughs> shape or form. But uh, I think like when I think of Miracle on 64, which I've actually actually 34th Street. I have seen that one. It it's like it's too much. I just find it too much. It's like, especially anything, yeah. I'm going to confess, yeah. anything with too many children in it is going to kind of get me. And I was very, <laughs> I was very worried when they brought oh, in yeah. the kids and I was like, oh no, do not make that kid cry too much. Heartless, child-free person over <laughs> here. But I was like, no, there's fine. They're, we're okay here. Um, but yeah, so for me, I am fine calling this a Christmas movie because I don't need my Christmas movie to be wall-to-wall Christmas, obviously. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. See, I prefer that. I, I I think that's one of the things about movies set at Christmas that have Christmas spirited uh-huh. scenes in them that I really like. Which is why I had us watch um, the movie whose name I can't remember. A couple of uh, uh, not so, it was the Joseph Cotton uh, Ginger Rogers movie that we watched a couple years ago that I will remember in post production and edit this in. Jelly from the future says it's I'll be seeing you from 1944. How could you possibly forget? But it happened at Christmas, but it was not really a Christmas movie. It was a, right. it happened over the Christmas New Year's week, just like this one does. And I like the idea that you you pause for Christmas, you have a scene that evokes Christmas. I mean, this movie made me tear up a little bit, and every good Christmas movie mm-hmm. should make you tear up a little bit. But it was not just wall to wall Christmas because that is not my personal taste. And I, I like the idea that Christmas exists as a thing people do and enjoy and and pause for, but that it does is not the reason for the movie's existence. Well, and it, it gives the sense that they have lives outside of the, the story or the holiday, right? It's, it's a, it's a bigger canvas. Um, one of the reasons I love Christmas in Connecticut is because even though it is really tightly focused on the holiday, it's also undercutting everything about, Hey, this is yes. what it's supposed to be. This is how we, mm-hmm. this is how we celebrate Christmas. And it's, I mean, it's wonderful for me. One of my favorite Christmas movies, I watch it most years, is the original Pink Panther, which is not at all a Christmas movie, but it's got a lot of snow. So it's okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's like Christmas movies, it just depends on the kind of movie. Like the Hallmark movies really know what they're mm-hmm. doing, and they are really fun. And if, you, if you're in that zone and you're in that mood, they're great. At the same time, I saw a thing online the other day. Uh, what has 12 actors, uh, four settings, and five plots? 365 Hallmark Christmas <laughs> it's movies. It's true. Which is why. <laughs> which is a yeah, fair and comp, Which is why we made the bingo works. cards from Smooch. So you can. You, right. And we played them last night when we watched a movie. And, They're brilliant. Uh, oh, Steven did you? Oh, good. Shapansky is super intense about it. It is delightful. But it's like, it works because they're so tropey, but also they're like candy fluff that is comforting. And I can, you know, so I don't expect, I don't expect or need the depth from them, but like they all blur together. Like, did I see that one or not? I can't remember. If it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, the only. The only Christmas movies I like, I watch like that are with mm-hmm. you guys on Agents of Smooch because that is exactly the dosage <laughs> I like my Christmas mo- my Hallmark movies in because I can appreciate them for what they are. I don't have to look, you know, don't have to be snobby and look down my nose at them. But I also don't also, have to watch twelve of them. Like watching them with, with people with a lighthearted, amusing approach yes. is oh, like yeah. again, especially that when is you the have fun a beverage. Part, right? <laughs> <laughs> like did 
did I see this this movie? It's I'll be home for Christmas. Wait, wait, I'll be in Nome for Christmas. No, 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 no. I think it was I'll build a home for Christmas. Oh, wait, I saw them yeah. all. Right, you know. But there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with no. wanting comfort and wanting a happy ending and knowing you're going to get one. And just well, seeing, you, you know, how about, do you get to the happy ending? If you think about the Nancy Myers movie, mm. The Holiday. I think about it yeah. often. Would it work in... <laughs> Would it work in the no. summer? I mean, I, I, I think I, because people trade houses in the yeah. summer. I mean, it could be an English woman or sorry, sorry, an English woman who wants to come to California and a Californian who wants to take a summer holiday in England. So you could tweak it and make it into, a you know, a movie that sort of works it's at another true. time of the year. But Christmas just gives it that whole glow that's sort of sweetness and English country and snow and all that. And then on the Hollywood side, who would do something nice for an old cinema guy, like in the middle of the summer, they probably wouldn't. So the Christmas spirit, you know, comes over Jack Black, and he, you know, he brings visibility to, you know, an old figure of Hollywood who's been forgotten. So the Chris, I think you kind of need a Christmas angel for that mm-hmm. part of but it. But there's another one that, like, I think part of what makes it good is it's not Christmas saturated, but it is kind of it is a great Christmas movie. Well, the, and that's what's interesting about Christmas being in the middle of a movie like this, because Christmas comes upon them and it's kind of a surprise and it changes their attitude and because the whole rest of the movie hasn't been about Christmas you get the feeling along with the characters oh it's a different time I'm in a different place I have the opportunity to see things differently and to be different myself and that that for me is that makes a great Christmas movie if you ask me well and it is a literal transformation I mean I had a, a theater mentor who I mean and and once he taught me this it sort of unlocked why so many things that are good are good to me that in a good story the protagonist has to change um not that they they could change they might change no they have to change otherwise why are you watching this why are we reading this right and you know sometimes when it's you know hey you're going to be visited by three ghosts in one night and poof you're totally different for the rest of your life um, eh, that's why I don't like Christmas Carol either. Um, but this does allow a little bit, you know, you get to know these people and then you get to see them thinking, you get to see them changing because of their interactions with one another, that they wouldn't normally bump into these people any other time of the year. But here is a time where we're bringing people together and, and they don't have homes and we're going to get to know them and, you know, all of that has this this cumulative growing effect on Charlie Ruggles. And I like that he doesn't change right off the bat. Mm-hmm. It takes him time. And, you know, he starts to fall in love with his ex-wife again. And he starts to see these things. and But yet he's still trying to disrupt his daughter's uh, affair. He's trying to, to fight for this property that they're they're going to buy. And, and the ex-wife finally says, you're wrong. You didn't really change. Just forget it. We're done. And that's that's almost like the, the spark that finally changes him, where he's like, oh, wow, I've learned all this stuff, but I'm still not changed, and I'm still being a bastard, and I can still fix that. I have time to fix that. And all of that, you know, again, it's all built in, and this is why 
I love the last line of the movie and I hate the way they play it because, you know, everything's happy. Everything's, you know, they all go off. And he finally says, like the last thing he says is, Mary, remind me to nail up that loose board that they've been using to get in and out of the mansion secretly. Remind me to nail up that loose board. And there's no reaction from from Mary. And he just keeps on going with the next line. Because I want McKeever to walk in the front door next year. And everybody goes, oh, mm-hmm. and the movie ends. Whereas it would have been so much better to say, remind me, you know, yeah, it's all a happy ending. I've changed and we're going to get married again. Remind me to nail up that board. And if she had gone, what? Because that's the last, you know, it's like, oh, my God, what are you doing? I thought you changed. And that's when he can say. Because I want him to come in the front door. Yeah. And then you get a bigger awe because, oh, it's funny, too. But, you know, you just have that split second of, wait, maybe he didn't change. Um, and she should be on the lookout mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. To not, have, it shouldn't, yeah. It, not enough time has passed for her to believe in his change completely. Exactly. And for him to say a thing like that, she should be suspicious of it. Yeah. And, and the setup is there. The writing is there. And it's just directed all wrong. I was, I was wondering, like, why doesn't he want McKeever to know? Because at some point he's going to have to tell him. So why is he the one that's not <laughs> right. going? And if you want hey, him to come in the front door. Because McKeever will show up at the fence yeah, and it'll be like, nailed right? up. Because <laughs> like, I, I can't like, get well, in. If you just, yeah. you could just let him keep doing it. And I don't know. I was, I was like, I don't understand why we're not telling him. I think, and we didn't get to see sort of that reveal. Um, was a little disappointing to me. I thought maybe they would, because he's going to his house. He's going to leave him a note mm-hmm. at the other house or something like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, maybe they filmed it and it didn't work. Yeah, I mean, maybe. That's certainly yeah. possible, too, because it does, it does seem like that's a scene that's missing from the movie, that there's some moment where they look at each other and, you know, he, he the realization comes over him and you know, maybe, maybe he puts his finger to his lips, you know, don't tell the others or something like yeah. that. Well, and, and I kind of like the idea that, we preserve Victor Moore's innocence, right? He's innocent like a child. And it's kind of like Santa. He can believe in this guy whose houses he keeps going back and forth between. Never seen him, never met him. Hey, but you know, and I, I kind of like that. They leave that to happen off screen to be, you know, well, you know, maybe I'll run into him at my Virginia mansion, Maybe he'll come back next next Christmas, and and I'll be like, "Hup, I'm here." Um, because I can't I can't imagine he'll keep up the charade for the rest of his life either. Uh, but I but I like that we we get to leave Victor Moore innocent and happy and blithe and just a free spirit. Yeah, well, I think it it does simplify it. I can I can see that them having filmed something that didn't work, or it it get he's the character that is the most the same from. Yes. the beginning of the movie to the end although he has like you know he is this guy who's been doing this thing on his own and he as we, as we talked about you know he now has this cavalcade of people who's getting in on his thing and he's happy to let them in on a human being level but his his main concern is don't mess up the house okay cuz that could that could screw this whole thing up and he's he's right to feel that way but he he's just he's himself throughout the movie and in fact like maybe a little too much of himself is cuz cuz as i said he's you know kind of bossy yeah. But he's the he was well, the one character who doesn't change. He doesn't really need to change. Yeah, he's he's not the protagonist. He's like I said, he's the agent of chaos. It's a very very small scale, mild chaos. But 
it's without without him disrupting the reality of things in the very first scene nothing else happens i felt a little sad for him i think it's at new year's where he makes the speech of well we'll probably never see each other again and it's like he's <laughs> created this little community that he kind of didn't want and then he's yeah he has this little speech about he's you probably will go our separate ways we'll never see each other again i wish you all the best i hope you're happy and that made i'm like oh i think you will because i think people liked you don't worry and they all know where you're going to be on november 3rd well that kind of encourages them to think about the future because yeah they might have gone their separate ways but this sort of reminds them we created a little bit of a temporary family Mm -hmm. here and we're going to need to pull him back in or let him pull us back in in some way whatever that might be and that it's important to him like i say he's he's a little bit aggressive but he also this ends up becoming meaningful to him this group of people well and and the one the one line that really hit me hard at the end was where he says you you have all become my friends and uh, to be without friends is a serious form of poverty which not that monetary poverty is kind of serious too but (laughs) it but you know for a movie like this that's the sentiment they're trying to get across they don't they don't really do a good job of uh confronting the reality of what it would be to be a hobo or a panhandler or anything but you know they're movie hobos yeah they make him a romantic figure like somehow victor moore gets by because he lives in these mansions or whatever but yeah they they and he's an older man he probably would have health problems at some point they they gloss over a lot of the details of i think there are some reviews that sort of address that that there's not there's not really an edge to the movie even though you have politics which is another conversation i wanted to have about this feels like pre-war politics in the sense that there's socialism and sort of you know the richer doing things that are displacing the poor in some way the movie itself doesn't really have an edge about that it's it's a little bit mm-hmm. capra that's another capra-esque aspect of it because it can talk about social issues but it doesn't really push you to do anything as the viewer and the politics as i say it's it's so so the the rich guy has uh taken away the place where don defoe this ex-serviceman is living in order to build a skyscraper and that's bad and don defoe is just trying to he's trying to don defoe is trying to use capra Capitalism. He's trying to raise money from his friends to build barracks for or build a housing for ex-servicemen. And he's doing it in the capitalistic way. But a guy who's a bigger capitalist than him, who has personal motives, is making it hard for him. And then all these other people are homeless for various reasons. And so there's a political edge. There's a political aspect to it, but there's really no edge to it at all in the movie, which is that's very post-war. The, the political content itself feels pre-war but then the way they respond to it feels a little more post-war well the solution is it's like they walk up to the line as you say Shelley, and then the solution is like well a rich people person will just fix this for us (laughs) and that's not a sustainable solution but the questions they're asking like those are really relevant to us today which i i was hoping for something of course why why would i think that uh but i was hoping for something a little more substantive in that but but yes no the solution of the rich person will just be generous and he can keep being rich but now we think he's nice and then we get what we want but that doesn't it sort of helps people because you're creating some housing instead of mowing all of the housing down but it doesn't it doesn't fix anything 
or change anything. So I would yeah. have liked a little bit more of a backstory on, you know, the, the younger men. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, a young man and his wife and they have a baby. So what, what have they been? I mean, obviously, we know what they've been doing since the end of the war. <laughs> but I mean, they have no home. Um, they're trying to find an apartment with a baby. I mean, how where where were they when the baby came? Were they living with someone's parents? Um, why did they? Maybe they had military housing. Yeah, maybe he's out of the. Maybe he's been not no longer deployed, and he's back in the states, and they've got military housing, that sort of thing. I don't know. I think they brought him back, and there was. I mean, remember um, you may be right, the, might not have been. the best years of our lives. Everybody got on those planes and came home. Yep. You know, That's so true. were they living with a set of parents or something like that? You know, I just, I would just be interested in knowing that mm -hmm. and what was um, the fortune if he's the second richest man in the country? Did he make his money, lots of money during the war? Um, you know, how come it's 1947 and he's the second richest man in the world? What, or sorry, in the country? Where did all that money come from? I would right. like to know a little bit more about that. I think it was World. World? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I'm yeah. Not, I don't remember. Yeah. And well, at some and, point, didn't it say that he had been born in humble beginnings? Mm -hmm. So then. Well, he talks he about like that with Mary. They lived in yeah. a railroad flat, and I guess he did the old pull yourself up by your bootstraps and take over the world kind of a thing, which I suppose is supposed to make him even more sympathetic, not only in terms of that memory, but just in terms of, you know, I was like you, right. and then I got rich. So maybe the lesson is, if you just you have the right breaks, you can become a capitalist too. Right. right? It's, it's very much like Scrooge <laughs> starting off in, in simple, uh, mm -hmm. plain existence, and then, you know, becoming, becoming the rich miser. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's the point where he says, "Remember, remember when we lived in the railroad railroad flat, and twelve dollars was expensive." Lived over there with Dana Andrews and his parents from it's, it's one of the, the best years of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, and I think the only other thing about the way that it ends, where uh, O'Connor signs the paperwork over to Don DeFore so that he can then build his development, that the two thoughts I had about that are, I assume or hope what happened just for the the, uh, the synchronicity of things is that the money that the veterans had raised is what pays for it. So it's not just that his mm -hmm. future father-in-law is paying for it. It's that he's going to, Don DeFore is going to give him that money in exchange for signing it, signing up. And the other thing is there there is a point where uh, I believe it's Mike who said, I can't actually remember, but, but there's the implication that this uh, venture is not destined to be profitable or is not destined to make anybody rich. Maybe it's going to break even. Maybe it's going to be a win-win for both the veterans who get housing and, and uh, Don DeFore who has a means of gainful employment. But you don't get the impression that it's that they that the movie thinks that Don DeFore is going to get rich doing right. this, which is interesting because yeah, he's not going for capitalism. He's going for part altruism and part I need something to do with my life and support this family that I'm about to start with, Gail Storm. Well, and and he's going to he's going to marry an heiress after all. So well, that's true. So we have a whole different yeah. Movie he's, he's does he know okay. does he know she's an heiress? By the end, he, she, By he the end, he would. See, yeah. I was trying to figure out exactly where that happens because yeah. I don't remember him saying it to her. I mean, he finds out who Mike is and, and presumably comes home and says, in, boy, you'll never believe in this. In a bit of a slapstick does, scene that, again, doesn't match the yeah. tone of the rest. 
Mm-hmm. Right. But do, do, do he and Trudy have a conversation where she goes, hey, uh, just something I ought to tell you. Uh, this is Mary. She's my mom and she's married to him. And I'm the heiress to this. You know, they yeah. don't want to make it a big deal in the movie, but I don't remember it no, happening. It doesn't. I don't remember it him. doesn't. No, yeah. I don't think it does. They, they allied right over it. But she does make a point throughout the movie of, you know, I don't want him to know yet because I want him to love me for me, not for you and your money. So it's implied. It's slightly suspicious that all the clothes fit her. Yeah. Though. I mean, yeah. That would, that's <laughs> yes. like, wait a minute. It fits like it was made for you. And that I'm going to wear been... that, e- that first evening gown she shows up in. It's like, that looks really good on you. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in fact, the, this, the scene where I think she and Don DeFore have the most chemistry is that first scene where he's teaching her how to shoot a gun in the house. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's nothing more sexy than gunplay. Well, I, I kept thinking, you know. <laughs> Hey, now that's not how they taught us to shoot in the army. Oh, show me how. <laughs> I don't think in the army they like wrapped their arms around your waist and, you know, we're doing all this. I'm like, pretty sure because my grandfather was an artillery man. Any, uh, any, any final thoughts? What haven't we talked about for this movie? <laughs> well, there is one line that stopped me dead in my tracks and, uh, you know, when when you got the Damon Runyon Three Stooge cop in there, where you know his uh, Victor Moore says, "Why don't you invite your wife to join us?" You know that would be really nice. And he calls her up, and it doesn't go well, and she's she's not going to join us. And and I actually wrote it down. You know she's not bad. She never laid a fist on me except in self defense. Self defense. And I just went, <laughs> yes. "Oh, uh. oh, that got dark for a minute." Yes. And then we're back to our heartwarming <laughs> Christmas film. Um, it's like, wow, all cops are bastards, clearly. <laughs> so I was very interested in the references to the Gilded Age, since I am mm. a fan of the HBO series, The Gilded Age. And um, mm-hmm. the fact that it's 1947 and they're giving these tours of New York City and here's the mansion of the second richest man in the world. And these mansions come from the Gilded Age. And I thought, oh, interesting that even then that was something that the audience would have automatically understood. And there's a guy on Instagram who goes by Keith York City. His name is Keith Talon. And he spent the pandemic, when the pandemic started, he was working at Ralph Lauren and he got laid off and he thought, how am I going to fill my time? And he decided to walk every block of Manhattan, like, you know, go out every day and explore a new neighborhood. And he figured out, well, you know, maybe I can give walking tours since I've been doing all this walking. And now he's considered one of the experts on New York City and its architecture. And um, and he gives tours based on the Gilded Age TV show. So when I was watching <laughs> oh, that, I love that scene, yeah, in the beginning and then at the end again, um, where they said, and, you know, here's a mansion. And I thought, wow, you know, from 1947 to now, um, people are still interested in the lives of the rich and the mansions of the rich. I think Mm -hmm. a few more of those Gilded Age mansions existed. I think an awful lot of them have been torn down now. Yeah, Or made into other things, but a lot of them have been torn down. I was surprised how many. That whole block, you know, where Bergdorf Goodman's Mm. Goodman and the... um, Plaza Hotel, where that was all yeah. Gilded Age mansions, oh, yeah. and those were those were taken down, and even some of the ones farther north, closer to the park, have been taken down. Hmm. 
hard to maintain giant households like that as households mm -hmm. in modern day Manhattan, I would imagine. But it's interesting. So, so probably this one would be gone. I would not be yes. at all surprised if, I mean, I know it's mythical, but right. you know, it might have been. And there's another one nearby, the Guggenhof Mansion. Which, yeah, where he's <laughs> going to go stay <laughs> right, you know, next right, time. Right. So. Exactly. Annette, any final thoughts you have? I, I think the lesson that I've learned is if you're going to skulk and um, squat in someone's house is pick someone, one, with a good wardrobe, but two, that also is the same size as you, because then you can swan around and in all their clothes and uh, feel really good about yourself and look pretty swanky for at least, you know, a quarter or a third of the year. So that's the lesson I'm taking. Yes, let us all make that our mission to... Uh find billionaires who are similar to in stature to ourselves and then mm -hmm. take that's, over their lives when they're not used that's to where them. i'm recording from right now i'm in a <laughs> i'm in a tux the, Gu the guggenhoff mansion oh, oh, of course oh you, I, I, of course. you should have been in a smoking jacket yeah. didn't we all dress for the podcast well i'm in i'm in maize and blue so <laughs> <laughs> well friends thanks so much for being here to discuss it happened on fifth avenue this is the final show of the fall winter season of Lions, Towers, and Shields. We'll be back in early March with a spring program. I'm about to spring on my panelists. They don't know yet, but there's good stuff coming. Uh, this is episode 89. You can continue to keep up with us over on the socials at Lion Tower Shield. I probably won't post a whole lot, but if you have suggestions for movies or ideas or just want to chat with us about that, about uh, about the movies we do on the show, we'd love to have your comments. Uh, you can also reach out at uh, theincomparable.com com slash LTS, where you can subscribe to the show and read the show notes that I put so much work into. In fact, today, the number of self-referential LTS links, oh, it's out of this world, friends. Thank you for listening so much and have great holidays, whatever it is you're celebrating this time of year, whether it's Christmas or just the fact that there are an awful lot of movies to be watched uh, on, on your Hallmark channel or on TCM, whatever your pleasure is. Bye now. <laughs>